Spencer, what was your hardest ride of 2018? I'm pretty sure it was the Belgian waffle ride in SoCal back in April. I was knackered after that one. Yeah, but you also used like your computer to prove that it was the hardest ride. Well, yeah, you know, Strava has the relative effort feature and that takes my heart rate, power data, all the other factors that went into the ride, gives me a nice number that I can pair with other rides and it can tell if it's, if it's harder or not. Now, the relative effort, now that's a cool feature that's part of Strava Summit. That's the premium plan that Strava has. A lot of our listeners probably familiar with the free Strava app. What all is included in Strava Summit? Yeah, you get three different packs depending on what you want. There's an analysis pack, and then of course you also have a training pack and a safety pack. So the good news is for our listeners, they can give us a try for free for one month because Strava is sponsoring this episode of the Velo News Podcast. That's right. Go to strava.com slash summit. Use the code word VeloNews, all lowercase, and you can get a free month of Strava Summit. Check it out. Check out your training data. See what your relative effort is. Yeah, see if you can beat my number. I think it's like 792 or something, which seems like a lot. That sounds extremely painful. Thank you to Strava for sponsoring this week's episode of the VeloNews Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News. Here in the Velo News World Headquarters, depths of the building, Spencer Paulison next to me. Spencer, you are growing a wonderful December beard. I'm liking that thing. Thanks, Fred. You know, you got to stay warm. It's getting a little cold here. It's a little little wintry. Actually, it's not. It's been really sunny and dry here. Yeah. Dane also, uh, Dane Cash with me. He has some stubble going on. Dane, once you hit puberty, that's going to look great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I got a couple months left. Maybe it'll really start coming in here. Uh, guys, I was gone this past week. I was uh, out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I drove down on Wednesday, and as I was driving down, flipped on the old Twitter machine to see what's going on in the world of cycling, and boom, big news. The news hit as I was on the road that uh, Sky, the company that bankrolls the largest team in pro cycling has decided to end its ownership of the team after 2019. So I spent the rest of the, the drive down there just like trying to get cell phone service so I could check Twitter to understand what's going on. Not a lot of cell service on parts of that drive. No. And of course, big news days, I feel like always seem to hit for me where I'm like either at a ski slope or like in the car somewhere. So uh, what was it like here at the Villa News World Headquarters that day? I mean, was it just phones ringing, um, emails popping off, just everyone just frantically trying to understand what was going on with Team Sky? Nah, man, I was too busy getting fired up for Cross Nationals. Can't ah, be bothered with that good. stuff. That's good. I will say the, the gentlemen over in Europe were doing a great job, by the way, of calling some people for the for that Sky story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, they, they did the heavy lifting, no question. Yeah, Hoodie yeah. and Gregor, for sure. Well, on today's episode, to the Vel News Podcast, we are first going to talk about this Sky News, what it means for Sky, what it means for the sport, break down how it happened, look at some reasons why we think it may have happened. We have Andrew Hood uh, calling in to talk about that. Then the second half of the show, we are going to break down Cyclocross National Championships because those happened this past weekend out in Louisville, there you go. Kentucky. Uh, we had Chris Case on the ground, and we have some great interviews with the winners. Katie Compton won her 15th straight uh, Cyclocross National Championship. Amazing. We all called it. I think all of us picked Katie Compton to win. Not a tough one to call, though. Uh, Stephen Hyde took the men's race, 
We all called it two. I believe we all called Stephen Hyde winning. I think you're right. Uh, Dane, you were closest, though. You had Stephen Hyde and Curtis White won two. I had won three. Uh, I had Stephen Hyde and Gage Hecht, I think. Mm -hmm. Spencer, you only had one. Yeah, I was sort of hoping Jeremy Powers could find his way onto the podium. A little bit of nostalgia there, but he... He was looking okay. He, he did well to make it into the top five. Bunny hopping the barriers was very impressive. So again, Dane, I feel like Dane is, he just wins these picks. He's good at this stuff. Previewing things, that's, that's what I do. That's kind of what you he know? does. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's enough cyclocross talk for now. Okay, well, I am now joined through the magic of the internet uh, by Andrew Hood, coming to us from an undisclosed man cave somewhere in northern Spain. Uh, Hoodie, set the scene for me. Where were you? And what was your initial reaction when you got the news that Sky was pulling out after 2019? Yeah, I was up early. Uh, I think it was Wednesday morning, just get, going through some emails and uh, saw this kind of generic email from it wasn't really a Team Sky PR uh, Gmail account. And just uh, I almost thought it was a, a spam mail, almost erased it. I thought, well, gee, I better open this thing up just to see, just in case. And good thing I did. You know, there it was. Boom. Sky is days are numbered and uh you know there's a lot of been a lot of speculation was you know how big of a surprise was this you know uh i immediately made some calls to some sources and uh, by all accounts this was unexpected within the team sky ranks at least yeah so that's i feel like a big uh part of this story and a good place to start which is the fact that this was unexpected um i've had some people in my life say well you know you should have seen this coming after all you know sky had this very public merger with comcast that happened in september james murdoch who was a champion of sky was out of the company this being the parent company for the cycling team and so you know we should have seen the writing on the wall that Sky was going to end its ownership of this cycling team because its biggest champion was out of the company. And, you know, maybe that it just whenever these big corporate maneuverings happen, uh, you can expect change. But there were a couple things in my mind that really made this um, just it just kind of come out of the blue. The, the first thing is, is like you said, um, it was just a, a random press release coming out of very strange... Uh, time of the year. But the second thing is that Sky was signing riders as soon as a couple months ago. Um, when you did call your sources, Hoodie, what kind of reaction did they have? And what kind of scene did they set about uh, how this news was delivered? Yeah, everyone I talked to characterized it as a surprise. That was the word that was being bandied about um, among the people I was talking to. And I think you're right, Fred. Uh, a lot of those things kind of did fall into place. But those things really didn't happen until kind of October, November. You know, the Comcast deal, I think, came together in late September. James Murdoch left this, left the board in early October. So the writing was on the wall I could to a certain degree. Um, but in the larger context, as you just mentioned, you know, Brailsford has been on this quite aggressive uh, signing spree of, of top-name writers, you know, re-upped Garrett Thomas to a three-year deal. Um, signed a five-year deal with uh, Egon Bernal, and not to mention recruited a, recruited a few new names for the 2019 roster. So all indications were that Brailsford was operating on the assumption that the team would continue, not just to 2019, but beyond that. People were telling me from some uh, agents and some people close to the team were telling me that the uh, feeling was there was um, – indication within the company that the backing would be there through at least 
2021 and perhaps to 2024, which would kind of click it in with that uh, five-year contract with Bernal. Yeah, I have to wonder about Ivan Sosa, that young Colombian who got signed this year. It was it seemed like he was going to go to Trek Segafredo, and then Sky swooped in and put him on the team. And I got to wonder if old Ivan Sosa is starting to regret skipping on the Trek offer. <laughs> Yeah, Dane, let's say you're Ivan Sosa and you're uh, talking to Spencer over here from Team UAE Emirates, who has uh, sponsorship coming in indefinitely forever. And you have me, I'm Team Sky, and I say uh, midway through our negotiations, oh, hey, just so you know, uh, ownership probably pulling out after 2019. After that, don't really know what's going to happen, but we'll figure it out, man. Yeah. Uh, who do you who do you go with? It's going to depend on how much uh, you're offering for that one year of stability. And I, I do have to think that Sky is throwing him a ton of money for this one year at least. So uh, maybe he'll come out on top, assuming he does find a job afterward. Yeah. Still though, I, I gotta fig- I gotta feel like uh, any rider or agent in that situation, if they if they knew that uh, there were instability with the team they would be raising a red flag or at the very least telling their clients, you know, maybe demand a little bit more in that first year. So I'm with you, Hoodie. This was, this was a weird one. Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, no way would Garrett Thomas sign a three-year deal with Team Sky if there was even a hint within the organization that the team might be ending at the end of 2019 because, you know, the guy in this whole scenario who might end up losing out the most if Team Sky does fold at the end of the next season probably is Garrett Thomas. Because, you know, Chris Froome, he'll still uh, draw a big price contract just for the fact of who he is. Bernal is the rider of the future. His price will only go up probably in this scenario. Um, all the other riders in Team Sky, they'll be, they'll be able to find jobs, and some might make a little less, some might make a little more. But Garrett Thomas signed this multi-million dollar deal for three years that made him, you know, that set him up for life. And now it's being pulled out from underneath him. So, you know, no one that I was talking to had an inkling that this was coming. You know, there's been some suggestion that Brailsford's knew this was going to happen all along and he's playing some sort of, uh, you know, kind of spy game of signing these guys to all these long-term contracts and using that as some sort of sponsor bait. But uh, talking to some people that uh, in are familiar with the situation, that seems unlikely as well because also Sky, the company, and Brailsford, to a lesser degree, could be on the hook for these contracts if a new sponsor doesn't come through and the eventual writers don't find future contracts. So guys, why do we think something like this happened? You know, obviously over the last few years, there's been some rocky press around Team Sky, the fallout from Wigo Gate, Jiffy Bag Gate in Great Britain. It's been a big deal. They've gotten some bad headlines. Um, you know, they're the best funded team in the world tour, price tag over north of $40 million a year. So that's a pretty hefty sum that parent company has to cough up every year. Um, what other symptoms we think may have contributed to to this going on. You can only sponsor a pro cycling team for so long. I mean, it, you have to be, it has to be the most successful and well-loved team for it to last more than like five years maybe sometimes. Yeah, and when you have an ownership change like they had recently, I, I think it's going to be hard to, I mean, it's hard to sell uh, a cycling sponsorship to a marketing team if you look at like a domestic continental team in the U.S., and we're talking about a team upwards, you know, tens of millions of dollars that somebody's going to have to convince the marketing team that this is worth it. If it's hard to to sell Jelly Belly on sponsoring a team, it's going to be hard to sell somebody on uh, a budget that's, what, 10 times as big? But this is the team that's winning the Tour de France year in and year out. That's very true. Hoodie, any symptoms we may be missing here? 
Yeah, I, mean, I would kind of agree with all of the above. I think it was probably a combination of all those factors. I mean, you look at any major cycling team in the world tour, and there's almost always one guy within the sponsor organization that's just a bike geek. You know, either that was uh, Oleg Tinkoff, who was a millionaire bike geek who wanted to have his own team, or you have the Belgians who have backed Patrick Lefebvre for nearly 20 years, all bike geeks. And you have James Murdoch, who was a billionaire bike geek, and he's no longer in the picture. So having him out of the picture is a, a key factor. And plus what you guys said, I think the, the, the scandals and the bad press in the UK, which has really been on a scale I think a lot of Americans can't quite really appreciate. I mean, this has been a major scandal back in the UK. It's gone to parliament hearings. It's been on the front pages of all the major newspapers for a couple of years now. So there's a certain, I think, tinge of scandal associated with the team that will make it quite difficult for Brailsford to find, I think, a UK sponsor to step in, plus the added factor of Brexit, which is kind of, I think, nosediving the entire UK economy. So a lot of headwinds for this Sky organization right now. So I'm willing up with a take right now. I just got to get this take off oh, my chest. No. Yes, take. Because in the wake of this, I've seen a lot of discussion about how, well, actually, Sky was bad for cycling because it drove up the cost. And, you know, Sky is further proof that cycling's business model is totally broken, which, whatever, you could look at any cycling team, any bike race, and say the, the business model is broken. Um, and, and then a lot of people having discussion about how difficult it's going to be for Sky to find another sponsor. And I do agree. I don't think that um, Sky will be able to find a traditional sponsor where the marketing goals line up with the money they're willing to spend on it. But here's the thing. I think that a lot of times when we think about when we've been when people have been making these arguments, they think about the traditional cycling team model, which is like, oh, this bike team is built to like race throughout the year and get you, you know, sponsorship headlines and media impressions and TV impressions at these races across the world. And you add up those impressions and they, you know, somehow add up to money that you would have spent on a on marketing budget, whatever. But Team Sky, in my mind, breaks the mold because it's, you know, all these other cycling teams are machines that have been designed to like get last place at the Tour de France and, you know, get, like, a lot of media headlines whoa, whoa, or whoa. to, like... <laughs> Fred, they made the breakaway on stage 12, okay? I think that's a pretty big success. And they... think of all the small little sausages that were handed out roadside yep, by our... the publicity caravan. Totally. There goes our COFIDIS sponsorship. Or the, oh. team is, the team is designed to, you know, get on the podium here, or the team is designed to try and win Classics Week, or dominate Classics Week. Team Sky is designed to dominate the Tour de France in perpetuity, like, it's won six of the last ten tours, and it's designed to win the next five. It is a Tour de France winning machine that is proven. So when I think about the challenges that it may have in finding sponsors, I think of not yes, not of companies that are looking for that. I think of, like, wealthy, crazy individuals. I think of sheikhs, and I think of, like, people with money from the Middle East or Russia. Ego project. Ego project. That's what I'm thinking. There's a UAE team. There's a Bahrain team. Maybe there could be an Oman team. Maybe that's what Garen Thomas is oh, racing man. for in two years. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, so, Hoodie, what do we think? First of all, what does this mean for Team Sky and the riders? You know, it sounds like the timeline is the the gun went off last Wednesday when the news came out, and the finish line is sometime around June or July to secure a new deal. What does this mean for Team Sky? Yeah, it was an interesting uh, setting last week, and the team was gathering in Mallorca last uh, Tuesday evening for the start of their kind of winter camp. 
it's the first time that really the riders are getting together after the off season to do their first serious training, their first serious rides. And they'd be going to this um, place in Mallorca. In fact, this year they went to a new hotel. Uh, but they normally go up in the north coast of uh, Mallorca. They've been going there since, you know, the team was formed. They gather for this first dinner, kind of a traditional dinner to kick off the training camp, wrap up the racing season, look ahead to the next the next season. And, man, uh, Brailsford stands up 10 o'clock, uh, around 10 o'clock that evening, Tuesday night, and breaks the news to the riders and staff. Okay, guys, it's ending. 2019, it's over. I'm and glad then, of he course, did it at the end of the dinner, at least. <laughs> at least he didn't do it at the start of the dinner. Salud. That would have really put a damper on it. So, you know, it really um, – it, it caught everyone by surprise, and it was a shock because uh, no one saw this coming. So the riders, however, are very loyal to Brailsford, and you can understand why, because these guys, as you have mentioned, have won six of the past seven Tours de France. Three different riders have now become Tour de France winners, thanks to Brailsford. A lot of wealthy, very wealthy individuals now, thanks to Brailsford. And the team, despite all the flack and uh, abuse thrown at them from the outside is very uh quite a cohesive unit and they typically get along very well with inside the organization so all those guys the luke rose the garen thomas all those guys have been part of that organization for more than a decade they don't want to see their uh sweet ride come to a halting stop so the team's going to stick with brailsford as long as they possibly can and most people agree that drop dead date is between the Giro and end of the Giro and the start of the tour. If you don't have a sponsor in place guaranteed by then, riders will stop, start going wet. That's what happened at BMC last year. Richie Port, Rowan Dennis, all those guys bailed on Oakwoods. You know, one of the interesting storylines that was reported on in the aftermath of this news is what this will will do to this the transfer market if all these riders suddenly flood the market, all this talent suddenly floods the market. Gregor Brown had a really good story about that. What do you think, Hoodie? What's your take on on how this could affect all the other riders out there in the peloton who thought they were secure in their teams, but now maybe they'll be fighting for their spots with all these sky riders looking for jobs? Well, that's exactly right. And anybody that's on a contract season in 2019 will probably see their value go down. If you're a Vincenzo Nibali or a Nairo Quintana or a Mikel Landa, you know, you're suddenly not competing just against those guys, but against the entire Sky lineup. So, you know, who wouldn't love to sign, you know, the top 10 or 15 guys on Sky? They always say, you know, the guys are so good they can lead a team. The Kiewitowskis, the Voot Pools, all those guys will be getting top job offers across the Peloton. And we'll see, you know, I think it's going to have, it's going to be unlike any rider market ever in the history of modern cycling to have basically an all-star team, the New York Yankees, suddenly cl- closing at the end of the end of the season after winning the World Series. Say, okay, guys, free agent, sign yourselves away. Yeah, can you imagine a guy like Chris Froome having to race against Garen Thomas or having to race against Wout Poles or any of these guys? That would that would be quite an exciting dynamic. Storylines. Yeah, yeah, a lot of storylines. Well, I know this is something, you know, we've we've written some pieces on the site, the uh, the quest for parity and whether Sky's demise would bring about more parity to the sport. This is something we've wrung our hands over and written lots of columns over the last year, Sky's dominance in the Tour de France. But I got to say, I, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't want Sky to end this way, you know? I would have m- much rather have seen them... Um, 
I don't know, get beaten at the Tour de France and then have their riders taken away and just get dismantled, well, you know? Yeah, well, literally no one would say, it would be better if there were $40 million less right. in the world of pro cycling. No yeah. one will say that. Everyone agrees that more money in the sport of pro cycling is a good hey, thing. The French will say that, and they've been saying it all week. <laughs> good Lord. I don't think we can look to the French for leadership on this issue. I wonder how Romain Bardet feels about the whole thing. Yeah. What kind of feedback have you been getting from other directors, sportifs, and uh, managers out there, Hoodie? What are people saying about what uh, this could mean for the sport in general if Sky goes away? Uh, a lot of initial reaction was just what Spencer was saying, that it's bad news for cycling to see the best team suddenly get the carpet pulled out from underneath them because, you know, as much as I think certain teams and riders perhaps were uh, in a certain way jealous of what Sky had just in terms of how much money they had, you know, $40 million, you know, that's twice as much as Movistar and the other big teams in the Peloton. But that's what everyone was striving towards. That's where they all that's where they all wanted to go. That's where the, the whole sport wants to be like Team Sky. That's the ideal for all the teams is to build that build that foundation and build their budgets to where they can all operate at this higher level. Now you take out the Team Sky, and suddenly it's a much poorer sport. So that was the first reaction. And then I think um, the second reaction is a lot of them were like licking their lips. You know, I mean, come on. You get the, some of the best. And if you look also, not just the headline writers that, that uh, Brailsford has, but all these young writers he's built up over the last two years. I mean, he's got on some the top quality writers, uh, you know, that he was recruiting to kind of build Sky going into the post Frumera. And that's why there's no way that the team was going to close it 2019 because he was building for the future after Froome. Well, it's definitely going to be the story we follow through the first half of 2019. Um, I know how teams every now and again will bring prospective sponsors around, like have them ride in the team car at a race or have them come hang out on the team bus at a race. Hoodie, that's going to be your assignment. You're going to have to stake out the team sky cars and buses to see if any weird shady figures show up who don't belong. Like, um, I don't know, like representatives from, yeah, like, um, you know, former Soviet kleptocracies or, um, you know, oil and gas companies. Some Chinese tourists who might not be Chinese tourists. Yeah, I mean, what's the scuttlebutt of who, if there were to be a someone to step into Sky's position, um, where would they look to get the money? Yeah, I mean, there's rumors flying uh, that it's, you know it could be kind of luring in uh, a Chinese sponsor. Finally, a high-profile Chinese sponsor. I mean, I don't know how much credence that has. Um, just as Dane just pointed out, you know, Pinarello was bought out by this uh, French part of it was bought out by this French conglomerate. Uh, LVMH, which is a you know huge kind of uh, high-end boutique French conglomerate that, that owns uh, Louis Vuitton and Christian Dior and a bunch of uh, upscale brands. And there was a report in the Sunday Times of London that they might be interested in taking over the sponsorship. Because as you guys have been saying, it's one-stop shopping. Boom, you basically buy the yellow jersey. It's not going to cost you $4 million, but it's yours for the, yours for the taking. One-stop shopping for all your luxury products, mm. too. That would be the most balling team if it was Louis Vuitton team. And let me tell you, I know that 
Louis Vuitton sponsors a lot of major sailing ocean races, and you want to find an expensive sport, that's an expensive sport. So they got some money to throw around at these random niche sports like cycling and these yeah. other things you like. Think about your boat shoe budget that you have to have yeah. when you're like oh, yeah. a sailing guy. And it's all carbon fiber. It's like a bike, but it's huge. Boat shoe budget, uh, your like crew neck. Your sweater that you cross. A, yeah, oh, we're yeah, talking about different kind of sailing. We're talking. I'm talking about the high tech stuff, like America's Cup stuff. That's no. that's high tech. I was thinking about like, hey, Dane, want to go boating on the Sound? Yes, mm. sure. <laughs> uh, well, hoodie, this is your assignment for the rest of the year. Find out uh, what's going to happen to Team Sky, and if Egan Barnell will be racing for the Vela News Lunch Ride Team next year or for Team Sky. Uh, something tells me not the Villain News Lunch Ride team. Hoodie, have a great evening. We will catch up with you in a couple days. Okay, we are back after talking Sky with Andy Hood. Uh, man, that was that's, that's a big story to follow. God, that'd be so cool, though, if Louis Vuitton sponsored a cycling team. We were going through it. Danny and I were going through, through their different holdings at the break, and uh -huh. it's like, it's all the ballinest brands there yeah. are. Hennessy. Hennessy. Chandon. A lot of things you see in rap videos. Yeah. So, yeah. Louis, Louis V. Oh. Mark Jacobs. Yeah. You know, for the budget conscious. Which, yeah. Uh, well, we could have Chris Froome in a rap video. That be, that's what I would like yeah. to see in 2019. Andre Greipel has done a rap video, I was just going to say, I think, yeah, this is something Andre Greipel's done before. It's a good one to look up if you haven't heard it. So. Well, that was like a novelty gorilla rap video, right? Yes. I'm yeah. talking about real deal, like, spinners, dubs, Froome. Yeah. You must watch a lot of rap videos, huh? <laughs> you know, we all have our hobbies. <laughs> hey, guys, speaking of hobbies, let's talk about the muddiest, dirtiest uh, sport out there. Not a hobby. That's a brutal segue. Not a hobby. Cyclocross is not a hobby. It is a serious sport that people take very seriously, <laughs> including Spencer. I, I take it medium seriously. I used to take it very seriously, but I try to chill out this time. But uh, Cross Nationals. Cross Nationals. Louisville, Kentucky. We, we warned you guys that it was going to be gnarly, that it was going to be muddy, that it was going to be hard. And sure enough, this course, Joe Creason Park delivered the goods. That was a great race. That, that course was just so heavy. I think it was great depending on if you were a spectator or a person racing, because I saw a lot of people with the frowny face and saw some stuff on social media about how it was unrideable. I gotta say, as a spectator, I loved watching that yeah, race. Yeah, maybe true, but I, people gripe so often about how, oh, it's too dry for cross racing, it's too warm for cross racing, it's this, it's that. They want real cross conditions. Well, knee deep mud, that's real cross conditions. I will say, maybe ankle deep. This year's Cyclocross National Championships produced some of the best social media videos, images, whatever, of people just stacking it into thick mud. People having a good time crashing, people not having such a great time crashing, winners crashing, losers crashing. Well, not losers, not winners crashing. Dane, have you indulged in some of the crash social media? I'm still looking for that one that you mentioned this morning about, was it an under-23 rider at the finish line? Oh, the junior kid who junior got kid. crashed after he won. Yeah, that was oh, in, that's in our round table. Check it out no, at the bottom. I'll check that one out. Uh, Twitter video. There's the amazing photo of some single speeder dressed as Colonel Sanders. That's great. mid-crash. Uh, it's very regionally appropriate and, and well done, too. It was a nice costume. Single speeding, that's all about the costumes. But I'll tell you who wasn't wearing a costume, and I'll tell you who also didn't really crash, is Katie Compton. Okay. She won her 15th consecutive 
National Cyclocross Championship title. She's amazing. That's a segue right there. That's how you do a segue. That is good. I will study at Segway University (laughs) with Professor Spencer Paulson. Some people say I'm the Katie Compton of segues. Well, Mr. Katie Compton of segues, take us through the women's race. Yeah, so Katie Compton, not known for being a fast starter. This was no exception. She said she pulled out of her pedal on the start straight, had a little bit of a bobble there. Ellen Noble known to be a fast starter, did just that. And she went out hard from the gun, although she wasn't out front for very long because Katie Compton got right into it, caught up with her, and she rode away and did the did a big solo effort pretty much for the majority of the race, riding alone, riding her own pace, comfortable, choosing the lines she liked, not having to contend with other riders. It's a big advantage on a muddy course like this if you can ride your own race and not have those dangers and distractions of being elbow to elbow with someone else. So I think this is yet another uh, amazing performance in the 15 chapters of Katie Compton's winning um, cyclocross nationals, because in looking back and thinking back to the victories she's had, she's won on snow, she's won on ice, she's won on grass, she's won on fast conditions, she's won on mud before, but I don't think she has won on this type of mud before. And, you know, just talking about how well-rounded a rider you need to be to win the national championship 15 times in a row. I mean, let's think about this. It's a ridiculous feat. To be able to win this one after a season of not having great results and not feeling like she was the strongest and not being particularly confident, um, I see that as just a real feather in the cap. Totally agree, Fred. And uh, we talked about that on previous episodes of the podcast. You'll listen back to those if you're interested. She had some illness, had some allergies, not a great season for her. I'll tell you one other thing that does give Katie Compton a huge advantage as well is the fact that those 15 years, she's also been working with her husband, Mark Leg Compton, who's always in the pits for her, very dialed from the technical aspect of cyclocross. That makes a big difference on a muddy day like Sunday's race. And you could be sure that they had everything dialed with her pit bikes, with her tires, all the gear perfect and it has to be perfect when you're racing in such a muddy day like that yeah that's definitely a pitting every lap race no they're pitting twice a lap twice a lap twice a lap and it's uh yeah that gives you an idea of how heavy and difficult this race was so compton off the front the entire race there was a great race however for second place and that saw None other than Ellen Noble, as I said before, fighting with Rebecca Farringer, and then also Sonny Gilbert, who, Fred, you've got a history with Sonny Gilbert, don't you? I used to share a swimming lane with Sonny Gilbert, a very well-known triathlete. I believe she was the collegiate national triathlon champion, and uh, yeah, I used to swim with Sonny Gilbert here in Boulder, Colorado. I gotta say, like, the nicest person. Yeah, and so if you think about it, you need a lot of water to make mud, so if she's a swimmer... That probably means she was really well prepared for a muddy race like this one. Also a very good runner, which I do think actually really helped out in a race like this one. That's actually the case. Yeah, that's exactly it. This was, I mean, I wasn't exactly keeping track, but I got to think they were running at least a third of the race course. And you can see with the height difference Sonny Gilbert has, she's significantly taller than Ellen Noble. And I think that is an advantage when you're doing that much running. And in the final few laps of the race, Sonny Gilbert managed to basically run away from Ellen Noble. And Rebecca Farringer kind of faded out of the picture, had a few bobbles herself. Still a great result for her in fourth place because that is her best nationals result. But Ellen Noble, perhaps looking for something a little more, she was second last year uh, and that was her debut as an elite 
rider, though. She's just fresh out of the U23 category. To me, it seemed like a course where, yeah, like you said, you had to run about a third of it. You could make up ground, though, if you took chances on some of the descents and nailed it. We it, saw this in the men's race yeah. a few times. The guys taking chances on the descents and not nailing it, and it actually costing them time. But it really looked like Katie Compton was able to, you know, unclip the leg and have it out there for balance and zip down some of these descents where everyone else was really grabbing the brakes. Exactly. She's rock solid on the technical stuff, on the descents. Let's get right into the Katie Compton interview that Chris Case did on the scene in Louisville, Kentucky. And then we'll get into that men's race, which, like you're saying, definitely had some of that interesting dynamic of risk-taking and technical technical skills. Here's, Here's Katie Compton. Okay. So, Katie Compton, mm-hmm. 15. Tell me about that. <laughs> Yeah, this one um, feels pretty good. It was definitely a little bit more stressful than years past. Um, Part of it is just because I didn't feel as confident in my fitness coming into it. Um, And then I think for people just telling me like 15, 15, 15, I'm just like, (laughs) that kind of wears on you for a bit. So I was a little bit stressed, which... It seems silly because, like, when you, you know, won 14 times, so it's like, I think I'm good <laughs> for, like, confidence in national championships. But for some reason, like this one, I, I wanted to win again. I like wearing the jersey in, in um, Europe. And uh, it, I just – people get, have a lot of respect for the U.S. jersey, mm-hmm. so I like to wear it. And knowing the conditions today and knowing there's going to be quite a bit of running and then just really hard kind of combination of um, – like Valkenberg from last year yeah. type course and a bit of Namur World Cup that's um, kind of more watery mud. So combination of the two. And I know I'm good in the mud. I know. You can't bet against Katie Compton <laughs> like today, right? Not, not necessarily. Part of it is just how my breathing was going to do. And I knew I've got to be careful with that. So as long as I can control my breathing and have a decent day, like I know for sure I was going to have a – a good result um it's just you know sometimes my body gets the best of me or if i dig too deep and push too hard i'll have an asthma attack so i just made sure i, I kind of relaxed focused on being smooth and just try to do the best i could and then you know the result it, it was what it was so luckily that was enough to, today and i was able to win yeah um so that feels pretty great that being said mm-hmm. uh, you know it, it you dominated in a way. You you probably won by a, a couple minutes. Mm-hmm. Do you sh- when do you shift into don't make the catastrophic mistake on a day like today? Honestly, on a day like today, it doesn't matter what the lead is. Um, I if I was thirty seconds, if I was ten seconds, if I was a minute, for me it's all the same. Just because you can lose so much time if you lose focus and you yard sail on the downhill and then, or maybe you, something happens, you break your shifter or you fall on your derailleur side and you bend your derailleur hanger, like stuff like that where you can actually lose quite a bit of time pretty quickly. Um, I even had, you know, Mark had spare shoes for me in the pit mm-hmm. just in case um, my shoe broke or I lost it in the mud. And with this kind of rut, like mud, you could lose your shoe on the run-up. Katie so, Klaus lost her yeah, shoe twice, right? I bet, in, in yeah. Her race. I even tightened my boas down more than I usually do at the start because I was like, that's well, a little tight. Feet hurt a little bit, but it's going to loosen. <laughs> and sure enough, during the race, they were not they were perfectly tight. So I was like, that's eh, a lot of running. Um, but the descents were really fun, and the descents um, – it's good because there's you know slipping around you got to hit some of the ruts and some of the ruts are getting too deep and they aren't fast anymore so you got to know which ones to hit and which ones to stay out of um and so i figured i think my last lap i figured that out the most 
And so I was like, my, the last descent on the last lap, I was like, oh, I'm glad I finally dialed that line in. <laughs> yeah. That must be one of your biggest advantages mm-hmm. on a day like today mm-hmm. because you've probably raced in these conditions 50 times mm-hmm. in your life. And maybe some of your rivals out there have raced it five times or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the key in, key to riding mud well is you just got to let it go in the descents. And now that we have that, we have the disc brakes, um, it's a lot of rear brake and not so much front brake. And so I use the rear brake to help steer me around the turns and steer me into the ruts. Um, and that, that makes a big difference. Um, but in the mud, you just got to let it go. And it's hard for the, it's hard to do that though. Yeah. It's a, it's a commitment thing. It's like, you kind of got to commit, but you you have to let it go, but you can't let it go too much. You got to find that happy, happy medium. Um, but that's the thing with mud. Usually if you carry speed, you can ride it out. Sometimes it's safer Yeah. to, to, to just let it run out. Yep. Let go, let God. As I keep telling myself, like at the beginning of the descent, just let it run. Um, and that, that seems to work. And then the thing is you fall in the mud. It's not like you get hurt. You just get messy. So there's that too. That's pretty nice. But like where I live in the Springs, we've got so much gravel to ride and the gravel. Yeah, it's different than mud, but the balance is similar and like the slipping around is similar. So I get to ride that quite a bit on the, you know, mountain bike in the summer. So it kind of reminds me how to ride in the mud. And the running, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say from the outside Mm -hmm. that you, I wouldn't pick you as someone who loves running, but (laughs) today was a lot of running. Today was quite a bit of running. And like my body's just not built for running. Like I ran cross country in high school and like, I do like trail running, but I'm definitely not efficient. I'm not light enough to be a good runner, but I'm a decent runner. And like for this stuff, it's like you're running with five pound weights on your feet and it's a strength thing. We're not necessarily a speed quick thing. So I just knew like, I just need to, you know, quick feet, get up the run-ups, um, stay within myself in the running part. So when I get on the bike, I can have the technical ability to not mess up. How much fun did you have out there today? You know, it was fairly stressful. Like I kept reminding myself I need to <laughs> enjoy this a little bit more. But honestly, the technical bits were required so much focus. I figured if I lost that focus, I was going to make a mistake. Yeah. So I, I mean, I had fun to a point, but also there's just enough stress where I really wanted to win. I wanted to have a good result. I wanted to not yard sale on the downhill where I just focused on racing my race, keeping it smooth. Um, being efficient. And then I think the last lap through the barriers, I finally was like, okay, I'm going to win this thing. Um, but I figured at that point, you know, if I dump it and something yeah, happens, I, yeah, yeah. Left, you <laughs> I can run to the finish. Yeah. yeah. At this point I'm good to go, but I don't even know what the gaps were. I wasn't paying attention. Um, people were telling me that we know it was, I was hearing anywhere from 20 seconds to a minute and I'm like, I don't know what's right. So I just kept pedaling. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see you again in Tacoma? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. I haven't decided, um, what, you know, my schedule is next year. And I just, right now I just need to get through this season Mm -hmm. and see how I'm feeling. Um, but yeah, so far Tacoma is definitely a plan. Sweet 16. (laughs) I know the the pressure's already starting. I don't think people want like me to like stop the run. Um, I know it's going to end at I'm some sure point. I'm sure there are some people there's, that want <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's plenty of people who, who want to see somebody else win. Um, but, you know, it's bike racing, and I know, I know how it feels to not win and be second a lot of times. I see that at Worlds all the time. So, like, I feel, I feel the true. pain. I know exactly how it feels. Um, 
I'm going to, you know, do the best I can to keep the jersey as long as I can. Um, but I know the young ones are coming up and they're riding strong and they're going to get smarter and more experienced and stronger. So at some point it's going to end. Final question. Mm -hmm. How aware of your legend status are you? Honestly, I don't necessarily think about it just because I just like racing my bike. I, I like winning. Uh, I'm glad I've, I've been able to see Cross grow and change since, you know, I started racing in 99, did my first national champs in 2000 as U23, and then first elite champ in 2004. Um, just seeing where cyclocross has grown for women since then, it's been amazing. And we still have, you know, some room to go, and um, we need to start getting a little bit more with equal prize money and more respect and that sort of thing. But I feel like it's changing every year and getting better every year and uh, where it's come a long way even in the last five years so we just need to keep that progression going and I, I love the fact that I can be part of that and part of the reason why I want to keep racing is just like I want to enjoy kind of everything that kind of my generation put into getting women's cross racing to where it is so um, yeah hopefully I can keep doing this a little bit longer very good yeah congratulations again <laughs> thanks yeah, well, 15 in a row. Um, Spencer, have you ever done anything 15 times in a row? Uh, 15 times. Well, every, I mean, I've ridden my bike every year for more than 15 years. I don't know if that's exactly what you're thinking. Dane of. is not impressed. Not well, as impressive as Katie Compton winning 15 national championships in a row. And particularly when number 15 was so dominant. It wasn't even close. Right. It wasn't like she won by 10 seconds. Two it, minutes, it was yeah. two minutes. And, yeah. I mean, it was more dominant than recent years. She, she seems like she's better than even in last year. So True. that's pretty impressive. The, mu the muddy course like this does amplify the time caps. I will say that. So Spencer, take us through the men's race. Uh, again, mud sloppiness but this one turned into a two-man battle yeah this was a great battle in fact you had Stephen Hyde and his young teammate Curtis White off the front and they really took charge of things quite early in this race Curtis White had the whole shot there was a little bit of back and forth first half of the first lap there are a few other riders getting into the mix there but it really didn't take long before White and Hyde were both off the front and then chasing in third place was a young Gage Hecht. He's just 20 years old. We mentioned him on the preview show last week, and uh, kudos to Dane for saying he expected him to get on the podium. Or was that you, Fred? Uh, we both talked about yeah. Gage Hecht a little bit. I think yeah. we're both Gage fans. Yeah, kudos to both of us, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I doubted him. I shouldn't have doubted him. Uh, what was really special to me about the Curtis White versus Stephen Hyde battle was that, you know, at a race course like this, there's nothing, there's no such thing as perfection. Just there's constant mistakes, whether it's slip outs, spin outs, crashes, hitting the fence, doing whatever. And, and both of these guys were having constant mistakes, but it was basically he who could make the fewest number and who could recover the best from them. So, I mean, I, I'm flashing back to a scene in which they're zipping down the descent and Stephen Hyde stacks it up, but not too bad. Like, he limited the mistake. He had to unclip and lose some time, but then was able to get back on his bike. And then Curtis White having to do the same thing a couple of times later. But it seemed like Stephen Hyde just had a little bit more mojo in the penultimate lap and uh, just had a little bit more speed at the end of the race. Yeah, and to your point you made earlier about how taking risks in the technical sections could really pay off. Stephen Hyde seemed to be willing and able to do that. Curtis White 
maybe was trying to do that, but he wasn't executing. He had a pretty significant crash on the second lap. He clipped a course post on the fastest, most dangerous descent. And yeah, he got slammed. And fortunately, mud's fairly soft. So I, hopefully he's okay. But that forced him to chase very hard. This happened a few times, maybe not as dramatically, but you have these technical bobbles and you chase back. Maybe, maybe Curtis White was the strongest rider on Sunday, but I don't think he was the most well-rounded and technically fast rider because he kept burning those matches to chase back up to Stephen Hyde. And like you're saying, Fred, those last couple of laps, you saw the difference. Well, let's hear from Stephen Hyde. Chris Case caught up with him after the race. Uh, it sounds like this was not the biggest event for him of last week. This Winning the Nationals was the second biggest event for Stephen Hyde last week. Ah, let's hear from him. So Steven, number three, how does that feel, first of all? <laughs> it feels absolutely amazing. Um, <clears throat> I, I honestly didn't, I mean, I knew I had some good fitness coming in and I had a good headspace, but uh, I just, you just, there's so many like possibilities that can happen. And um, we had Gage Hecht enter into the, the ring yeah. and um, Curtis is going so well. And Carrie always turns up, you know, with good mud riding skills. Uh, Jeremy is he always pulls it out for nationals so um you know it was a big question mark on uh, what i could do and and um with all the running you know i haven't really been able to do it in my training as much with all my injuries so yeah. um i'm really happy to be able to to pull that off um but yeah it, it's a uh, it's a huge relief yeah i want to step back a few days actually because you decided to add a little what I would think would be a little bit of stress to your life and get married a few days ago. What, what was yeah. the thought process behind that? Well, you know, we uh, we wanted to have a, we wanted to elope. We wanted to have a small um, ceremony with our, our parents, um, our best friends, and um, and you know it was a very like uh, it was a great. It was a great time to, to get our parents here. They're both in the South, um, and we love the city here. And we're both, I mean, I'm going to be gone for a couple months leading after this. And, um, you know, it was just like a, it was a great special opportunity. And um, there were some stressful moments in it. But then, you know, we really thought about it, and it was like, hey, this is our day. Like, this is going to be great no matter what happens. And there was... Um, it ended up being absolutely beautiful. We went down to the waterfront. Um, it was on this gray Thursday, and the sun came out, and everything was beautiful. We did it right at sunset. And then we had this amazing dinner. And, um, you know, at, at that point, I thought, uh, hey, it's already Thursday, and I've won. Like, I've already won this week. So, you know, it could have been stressful, but it wasn't. It, nice. was, it was a beautiful thing, and it really kind of – I was kind of riding that, that high off of that for a little while. Yeah. Cool. And today, the sun shone on you again when you put the jersey on. Talk about the effort. Um, was it about minimizing mistakes today? Was it about, I know I'm going to make mistakes, so let's just make them and move on? 100%. I mean, both of those things. It was There was going to be mistakes. Um, there was going to be mistakes from everybody. And it was going to be the most consistent rider um, at the end of the day. And I knew that I didn't have the monster motor to make big accelerations to make attacks or anything like that and i saw this on this la on this course last year at pan ams and it wasn't even neat, you know remotely uh, like the conditions we have that it was a very easy course for people to blow up on um and if you got carried away early that you were gonna make big mistakes and you were gonna blow your engine up so i was just gonna let whoever needed to ride away ride away and just 
I know my body really well. I know, you know, I know my limitations. I know what I can do for 60 minutes. And um, if you listen closely, your body will tell you exactly what you can do. So um, I was happy to be able to just like, just just keep that, that, that rev limiter on there. And it really worked out. Did you sit on Curtis for a little bit and, and see how he was riding, or were you at your limit almost all all day? I, I, I literally, I just set the cruise control, and he was there with me, and I would say that, you know, we both made some mistakes, and we both had some really good lines here and there, and I was able to kind of watch what he was doing and learn a lot, um, and I think, I think our fitness was very similar. So it really came down to who was going to make the last mistake and who was going to be able to roll that away. Um, so I, I never attacked him, you know. I never probably, I probably never accelerated any more than I had to. And um, it really was who was going to make a mistake in the last couple. And in fact, you went down on the last, was it the last yeah. lap or second to last lap? Uh, last lap, uh, after pit one. How, how panicked did you? I wasn't panicked. No? I fell. I had an eight second gap at the time and I knew it was just like, again, everyone was going to crash. And um, at the time, I realized that the worst thing I could do is panic and try to put in a big dig to make up for it. Instead, I really just rode a very calm, collected, don't blow up, don't kill yourself, get off the bike before you need to, suffer on the running and just make it happen. Lap. Shifting gears, you're now going off to Europe. What uh, what do you want to do over there this period? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, I was excited with, with Nationals moving to December because it was going to mean that we can go over for a small gap or for a small um, uh, period before, come back, do Nationals, and then just stay over there, right? Uh, I haven't been able to do that. I wasn't able to go over and do some of my favorite races in Europe over there. Um, wasn't able to do any of the World Cups leading up to, you know, Namur next. Mm -hmm. um, so really, I just, I'm not going to say I have some redemption, but I just want to finish out my season really well. I want to ride this this fitness, and I want to ride um, in the level that I, I think I should be at. And um, I'm definitely not going to lie to myself and say that I'm on the best form I've ever been on, um, but I, I think I have some some good experience going over there um, on less than good form and on good form, and I know how to get a lot out of Europe. So I'm excited to just really finish off the season on a good note over there. In some ways, is it an advantage to have a cup? You might be going to Europe, quote, a little bit fresher, so to speak. And sure. maybe that's mentally fresher as well as physically fresher. Do you think that could be a good thing? A little bit of both. I mean, I've got, this is like my ninth race or something this year, right? Like yeah. that I've finished. And um, a lot of these guys are going on their their 30th by now, especially in Europe. Um, yeah. They're in their 20s, mid-20s by now. By the end of the Christmas block, it'll be 30 six or something like that um plus the travel you know all of that and then by the end of february they're gonna have 40 races in them so yeah i'm hoping that i can use some of this freshness and really put the motor on towards the end of the season and and hopefully have another um push the needle again in, at world mm -hmm. uh i've had a um a better and better and better and better and better ride at Worlds every single year and I really that's one of my goals is to just move that needle again yeah awesome. yeah congratulations cool. thank you so much wow getting married right before nationals yeah, that's a bold move yeah that is a bold move He's but a bold guy he is worked out yeah it's worked out pretty good uh, any lasting memories lasting thoughts from this year's nationals 
Yeah, just mud. Uh, here's mud. there. There was the debate. There was a uh, a debate that I saw online about whether or not they should bump up the elite men's and women's races in the race weekend, or they should have a course that runs like parallel to the course. Because the the thought was, you know, you send all these amateur riders over the course day in day out when it's rainy and muddy and it just churns the thing into sloppy mud and then the elites have to hit the course when it's arguably at its worst. Uh, any, do we have any thoughts, any takes welling up around this? Well, it's so variable from one year to the next. If you look at the, the Reno National Championships that happened in January last year, it was pretty much dry and it, it didn't actually matter at all. So I'm not sure if it's a good idea to just completely redo the schedule based on the assumption that maybe the weather will pan out in such a way that the course won't be such a disaster by the end of the week. Yeah, I mean, if every cyclocross nationals were this crazy muddy, that makes sense. But yeah, you don't see that all that often. And it's kind of nice to get a, a different terrain or a different uh, look every year. The, f- the funny thing is that, uh, on the other hand, if you remember back to the 2013 nationals here in Boulder at Valmont, Early in the week, it was quite snowy and muddy, and it was those were the worst conditions on like Thursday or so. And by the time the elites race went, which I actually did on that Sunday, it was bone dry, hard as a rock. I got uh, pulled. Uh, I was going to be lapped, which is pretty typical for me in these races. And uh, it it didn't matter at all that that it had been so gross early in the week. It's just one of those things. It's a dry climate, so it dries out here faster. Louisville's not that way. Louisville doesn't dry out as quickly. It's much more humid. Mm. And furthermore. Hey, like we said, don't people want cross conditions? We always get people complaining it's not cross conditions. Well, here you go. It's about as crossy as it gets out there. I think maybe we'll have to have a podcast about the different, like, regional mud. Mm. Like, talking regional mud, mm. this is more of a dry mud. This is sticky mud, tacky mud, slippery mud. Mm. The worst is the peanut butter. That yeah. just destroys every single part on your bike. Uh, how would you describe the Louisville mud? Louisville? It looked like kind of earlier in the day on Sunday, it was very... Very fluid, mm. uh, kind of, um, I don't know, like like a really thick hot chocolate, maybe. And then once you got into the elite races, it was a little more pudding-like, mm. perhaps melted ice cream type. It sounds but, like it uh, tastes good. Yeah. I kind maybe, of doubt that, yeah, though. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend eating yeah. too much of it. Spencer, your descriptions are making me very hungry. I'm not going to, uh, not going to lie on that one. Uh, it was... A national championship. It was great. I enjoyed watching it. Kudos to USA Cycling for putting on a good show, a good live stream. Kudos to Katie Compton, Stephen Hyde, and all the other winners. Uh, we had some U23 winners that were great, some junior winners that were just great. Spencer Petrov. Yeah, I was just going to say. So expressive emotional. with his face. Very emotional. Big one for him. Um, and that that was it. Now we have uh, on to the World Cups and on to the World Championships. Google. Christmas races. Yeah. Watch uh, Matthew Vanderpool take on the world. Do you think any of our American men are? We'll save that for another podcast. Yeah, let's wait. Well, guys, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on villainies.com. Subscribe to the Villainies podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Villainies on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Villainews. Villainies podcast is produced by Villainews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the Villainies podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. Oh, 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 oh,